Hi, this is Wilson, pastor of Renew Church OC, a church for imperfect people only. Thanks for joining our podcast. Over the pandemic, a lot of our lives have been reoriented. Whether it's our work, school, friendships, or church, we've become comfortable with a new normal because of COVID. Many of us are asking what church is and how important is it really? Can I be a strong Christian without the church? Or can I go to church in PJs and off a screen for the rest of my life? I hope this series helps you move away from cultural norms and beliefs about church and brings us back into God's word and heart for the local church. Enjoy the sermon. Welcome back, everyone. I hope that you had some fun sharing about your experiences with the Holy Spirit You know, the church I grew up with, it was like going to five or six churches theologically because we would swing all over the place uh, from ultra conservative. Everyone should be homeschooled and reading the King James Version of the Bible seminar to extremely charismatic and going to conferences and retreats that reflected that. And I think for most of us, we have one of those two experiences instead of both. Right. You you maybe went to a church where it was all about the Holy Spirit, all about prophecy and being slain in the Spirit and experiencing Him emotively. And that was really the crux of the service and small group. That was like the the climax of why people um, went to church and how they experienced God. And then for others of you, you went to a very conservative church where people didn't speak about the Spirit often and they especially didn't speak about spiritual gifts. Maybe they're sensationalists and they believe that all the gifts ceased at the completion of the Bible. So prophecy, word of knowledge, discernment, tongues, uh, healing were all kind of that early church um, giving authority to apostles' purpose. But when the Bible came out, we, we saw those gifts start to diminish or cease. Or maybe you come from a church that's open but cautious. And so... They acknowledge the gifts may or may not continue, but they don't emphasize it. And again, they rarely talk about it. You know, as I think about Renew Church, I want to be different than both of those church experiences. I, I envision our church being deeply rooted in God's word, primarily preaching through books of the Bible, studying it exegetically, having a rich theology, and then... Out of knowing God's word and listening to the spirit, we would um, exercise spiritual gifts. We would hear the spirit's words over our, our own lives and over those around us and be able to speak and share what God's put on our hearts in a really organic way. And just like how we pray for each other, we would share uh, what we're hearing from the spirit. We would do it in relationship. We would do it knowing each other. We would do it in love um, as a community. And so we're kind of, we're starting to explore that. And and I, I want our experience of the Spirit to actually come out of a very robust theology about who He is. And so that when when we are experiencing Him, we understand that it's out of the truth of Scripture that we're, we're experiencing the Spirit. Or in other words, our experiencing of the Spirit is experiencing what God has said about Him. 
that they're tied um, together. So first, I want to talk about the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. And this is important because the Jews will say, you know, why we're not Christians is because Christians believe in the Spirit and Jesus as God alongside of the Father. But we only believe in one God. So Christians have a Trinitarian view of God, one God and three persons, and the Jews reject that. But when we look at the Spirit working in the Old Testament, and we see these cameos of Jesus, we're saying that we're, we're not this distinct and disconnected faith from, from the Jewish God, from Yahweh, but we are a continuation of what God has always been and done throughout history. So Jesus himself, in John chapter 3, verse 8, actually describes the Spirit as a wind that blows wherever he, it wishes. And so when we see wind in the Old Testament, we actually understand that that is the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is a part of how God moves in these pivotal events of human and history and in the Old Testament. So at creation, we see the Holy Spirit participating with God in creation in Genesis 1-2 where it says the Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And then he has a very explicit role in Genesis 2-7 when God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And the breath of life is the Holy Spirit. He is the one that's being breathed into the nostrils of Adam, animating him, giving him a soul, allowing him to have consciousness, giving him life. In another massive event, after God floods the earth uh, with Noah on the ark, it said the God made a wind blow over the earth and the flood subsided. And we would say that it is the spirit that is the wind blowing over the earth, subsiding the flood. And then in the Red Sea, another historic pivotal event, the Lord drove back the sea with a strong east wind all night. So the spirit is the east wind driving back the sea, opening it up for the Israelites to pass. So he was always integral in the history of creation and in the nation of Israel. Then we see the spirit in the Old Testament where the spirit of God for David rushed onto David um, when he was being anointed as king by Samuel. We see Samson being empowered by the spirit whenever he's fighting the Philistines. And here in Judges 15, 14, the Spirit of God came upon him powerfully. He picks up um, a donkey jawbone and fights off, kills 3,000 Philistines. He takes on an army because the Spirit of God is empowering him. And on, in Isaiah, the Spirit of God comes upon Isaiah and appoints him to proclaim the good news to the poor, which is also a prophecy of Jesus' ministry. So we understand that the Spirit was always a part of the Old Testament, working in these huge, historic, pivotal events, as well as with the heroes of the Old Testament. But in general, when you think about God in the Old Testament, the primary concept of God is that He is holy, is that He is inapproachable, like going to God, walking towards God is like walking towards the sun. If we weren't millions of miles apart, it would consume us. 
So I also want you to hold in your mind this Old Testament accurate view of God where God introduces himself as holy and that's how every Jew primarily understands him. In Isaiah chapter 6, in the king, um, when the king died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on the throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, it's a, a type of angel or, or heavenly creature, each with six wings. With two wings, they covered their faces. With two, they covered their feet. And with two, they were flying. And they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The earth is filled with his glory. So, so Isaiah is brought up to heaven, brought up to the throne room of God. And this is what he's saying. The radiance and glory of the Lord is filling the temple. And you have this interaction with these celestial beings, these perfect beings, mighty, powerful, uh, themselves holy, but trying to press into the holiness of God. And as they're pressing against the holy of God, as they're trying to draw close to them, they're also retreating because of his glory, because of his splendor, because of his holiness. Again, it's like pressing toward the sun and and, and then falling back again. But they want to draw near to him. And as they're doing that, they're worshiping God. They're worshiping God with their, their, their wings covering their face because of their holiness. They're worshiping God with their wings covering their, their feet because of their holiness. And they're just saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. And you get the same imagery in Revelations. Meaning that, for all of eternity, across time, these angels are trying to move into God's splendor and glory. And yet, his holiness is, is so magnificent that they are, they are also retreating and covering. Because it's like walking toward the sun. And then you have Isaiah stepping into this sanctuary, this temple with the angels. And it says, at their voices, the doorposts. And the, the threshold shook and the temple was filled with smoke. So Isaiah is brought into the celestial moment. And what does he say? He says, woe to me, I cried. I am ruined for I'm a man of unclean lips and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen God, the Almighty, the Lord Almighty. This is how the Jews understood what it meant to be in the presence of God. It is horrific and terrifying that Isaiah, the most, one of the greatest prophets of all of Israel, stands before God and he thinks he is going to die. He is saying, I, I'm ruined. Like God cursed me by bringing me onto the surface of the sun. There is no way I can stand before God this holy, this glorious. I'm going to melt away because of my sin, right? I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to perish. This is a death sentence. Standing before the holiness of God is a death sentence. And at that point, one of the angels that was worshiping God flew over, put hot coal on his hand um, from the altar touched the mouth of Isaiah and see, said, see this torch, this has torched your lips and your guilt is taken away. Your sins are atoned for. 
basically, Isaiah did not die because God forgave him. It was it's 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 an involuntary judgment being before the holiness of God. Your sins will just disintegrate you. And it's because God had mercy on Isaiah that he forgives him. And he's able to hear God call him into ministry. It's it's an amazing commission from God. But this concept of God's holiness is is how he introduces himself to Moses. It's how he introduces himself to the Israelites where they're too afraid to approach the mountain. And he's like, they're like, Moses, you go. Like there's no one else that will be able to stand in the face of God. Moses says, God, I want to see your face. And he says, if you see me, you'll die. So I'm going to hide you in a cave. You look through the cave and I'll pass by and you can see like my tail. You can see like the glory that's, that's resonating off of me. And that's, that's all you'll be able to contain. And then they continued to face this conflict that God wanted to be with his people, but he is holy and they are sinful. God wanted to be intimate and close with his people, but he didn't want to consume them with his holiness where they just disintegrate like standing on the surface of a sun. And so they created the tabernacle and the temple. And the function of this temple was really a shield, a covering of God's glory so that it wouldn't be exploding everywhere so that God could be with his people but have this this shield, this shell around him and people could approach God, approach his glory, approach his majesty. They knew where he was. They could be with him without being consumed by him. And so there were all these walls walling off people from God and and the the fullness of his holiness but be able to step closer to him so the gentiles could come to the outer wall and and draw near to God and worship him <clears throat> the women and jewish men could come into the courts the priests could come into the inner courts of the temple where they're doing sacrifices But the Holy of Holies, where God resided, one man can come once a year. And that was the high priest. He could walk into the Holy of Holies. But he spent the whole year cleansing himself in every way, his body, his soul, his mind, because he knew that he was standing in front of a holy God. It was the most... It was the greatest honor for a Jewish man, for a priest, but the most horrific event of their life to stand before God. So once a year, this priest would journey through the curtain into the Holy of Holies after massive amounts of cleansing. And he would sacrifice for the Jewish people uh, um, an animal sacrifice to forgive the nation of their sins. But the other priests would wrap bells around his ankles so that they knew he was still walking and alive. They would tie a rope around him and and they were ready to pull him out of the Holy of Holies if God struck him dead, if he failed his cleansing ritual. They couldn't walk in because they would be struck down as well. 
and they understand that that's the cost of being in front of a holy God. You might die. So he, they entered with this, the greatest of reverence, fear, but honor to see God. What's really interesting is in Hebrews chapter 8, it says they, that God reveals this temple, this sanctuary um, to Moses that they built as a copy and shadow of what was in heaven. So this temple that um, God brought Isaiah into, he actually asked Moses and the Israelites to replicate on earth, kind of like a miniature of what the, the heavenly temple looks like. This throne room in which he resides that no one can enter into. So as we look at this massive curtain, as we think about what it means to approach God, this holy God as a high priest, we then think about what Jesus does. He is the great high priest. And in verse 37, it says, he is the great high priest. And when he dies on the cross, he enters into the holy of holies. And instead of bringing a lamb, he himself becomes the lamb of God. Instead of cleansing himself to walk into God's glory, he himself is God walking into the glory of God. But he also is man. And he represents us, just like the high priest represented Israel in asking God to forgive them. Jesus represents all of humanity by taking on humanity. And then is the high, so he represents us because he takes on humanity. He dies for us as the ultimate lamb and he forgives us. And, and in that moment, on the cross, as he dies for our sins, representing humanity before the Father, asking for forgiveness. It says in verse 37, with a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the curtain, and when the centurion, sorry, who stood there in front of Jesus saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Did you get that? At Jesus' death, he rips the curtain in half. And it's symbolic that now everyone, because of his forgiveness, has access to the throne room of God. Everyone feared touching God. Everyone feared approaching him. Even Isaiah, even the high priest, because of their sin, they couldn't draw near to God. Because of the sin of Israel, God could not draw near to Israel without shields and barriers and, and protection up. It, and then Jesus forgives us of our sin. And he says, now you can enter into the Holy of Holies. But even more than that, the Holy Spirit is going to enter you. You're going to be God's temple. You are going to be the holy of holy, holies that house God. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit dwells in your midst? 
If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy that person. For God's temple is sacred, and you together are that temple. In Romans chapter 8, verse 9, it says, If indeed, it says, You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the Spirit. If indeed the Spirit of God lives in you, and if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. There's a lot of great miracles, like the earth being created and <clears throat> Zion and beach volleyball. But then there's like these bigger things like Jesus dying for our sins, loving us that much that he would die for us. And then I think there's this thing too where like this miracle that God himself who is holy will live inside of us. That God who is inapproachable, who angels are, are like fighting to get closer to, having to shield their eyes, who Isaiah thought would die, he says, I'm going to live in you. That Jesus' forgiveness is so complete, so comprehensive, so deep, so defining that you get to be the Holy of Holies and I'm going to reside in you. I'm going to live inside of you. I'm going to take residence in you. <clears throat> and that's why John 16, verse 7, Jesus telling his disciples, I'm going to die. I'm going to get crucified. I'm going to leave you. And they are, they are like being shook and crushed. And then he says, I tell you the truth, it is better for me to go away. If I do not go, the helper, the spirit will not come to you. If I go, I will send him to you. That Jesus is saying that I, I can actually be more intimate with you than being next to you. That Peter and John had this amazing experience with Jesus next to them, walking next to him, eating next to him, sleeping next to him. But the spirit is even more intimate than that. He is living inside of us. There's no greater intimacy. I mean, it's kind of mind-blowing, right? It's almost, it's extremely invasive. Mikey is sitting in front of me. It's like, hey, Mikey, is it okay if I live inside of you? You know, like, if it's, is it okay if I live inside of you and know your thoughts and live this life with you? He'd be like, no, thank you. You know, like, <laughs> boundaries, right? Jesus, the Holy Spirit is the most intimate he can be with us without taking over allowing us to have agency. Like, try to imagine a greater intimacy. I cannot. He is the most intimate he can be with us. And Jesus is saying, it's more intimate. The intimate you're experiencing with the Spirit is actually more intimate than I can be sitting next to you in the flesh. It's better for the Spirit to come and for me to go. And that's what he reiterates in Matthew 11. In a, again, a mind-blowing way. He says, Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not raised anyone greater than John the Baptist. They're saying that from this point, from the time John the Baptist was born, all the way into the past of Israel's history and lineage, John the Baptist was the greatest. He's the greatest prophet. 
King David wasn't greater than him. Elijah wasn't greater than him. Isaiah wasn't greater than him because he got to usher in the Messiah. He's the greatest. But then he's, Jesus says this, Yet whoever is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John the Baptist and all the other prophets. Right? That somehow I'm greater than John the Baptist. Mikey is greater than John the Baptist. That's the only two people in the room. You are greater than John the Baptist and Moses and Elijah because when God empowered or spoke to them, the spirit was outside of them. Jesus' death marked the first time in human history where God was inside of us. And we were the temple. We are the temple of God. He lives in us. This God that, that the greatest prophet could not approach that was crying out, grieving that this was his moment of death. This God that snaps creation into being, that makes a sun and then helps us to realize that it's one of the smaller stars, but we have to be like almost a million miles away to not die. This like cosmic nuclear reactor of holiness and glory lives inside of you. That's how intimate he wants to be with you. And that's the power of Jesus' forgiveness, that he can live in us. We are the holy of holies. I had another half of sermon, like another half of a sermon of five other points of what it means to interact with the Spirit. But, you know, when I'm sitting with this talk I'm, and these texts, I was just like, I just want you to like walk away being mind blown that God, the God who sits on the throne has given you his presence and he lives in you. That's his greatest gift to us. He gives us himself in the most intimate in the most, in the closest way. That's how he's always longed to be with his people. And Jesus opens the door for that, for him to be as close as he can with us. When you become a Christian, when you said, Jesus, forgive me, I want to follow you, he sends the Spirit. God himself lives inside of you. And you're walking and breathing. And being with him all the time. What would happen if we were just more cognizant of this? If we just sat and took moments of the day, took a whole day during the week, our Sabbath day, and just sat with this God, this God, who sits on the throne and angels are trying to press into. This God who made the sun and it's like a glimpse of his glory lives inside of you. Can you just take a few seconds if you're a Christian to just 
stand in wonder of that? That God lives in you and you are his temple. You're housing God. That right now, right now, God isn't far away. God is is sitting next to your soul and he's been there the whole time. What are just, like if we knew that, if we sat with that, if we lived in that reality, how would that change like the most fundamental beliefs that we have? Like, like when you feel like God is distant and you're alone and he's withdrawn, that he's not cl- intimate with you, and then you stop and think, no, but, but God actually can't be closer. <laughs> like the tr- those are lies. The truth is that he lives inside of me. When you're feeling alone and unloved, when you're longing for connection, for someone to care about you, for someone to love you just the way you are, for someone to know you, because it feels like everyone misses, misses like the intricacies of your story. And you're just, you're just searching for that, your people, for that person to like fully know you. And then, and then you realize like God is with you. God lives inside of you. And instead of feeling alone, you can just sit with the spirit and say, you are with me and you're the best. (laughs) There's no one like you. I can just be still and be unalone, be with the best being, the greatest being in the universe. He wants to be with me and he loves me. When you're feeling powerless, powerless to forgive, powerless against your addiction, powerless against your tendencies, what does it mean to be to know that God lives inside of us? That the spirit who had the power to breathe life into humanity, the spirit that parted the Red Sea, the spirit that calmed the, the, the flood, that power, that same God, that same power lives in us. And can give us power over any sin, over any addiction, over any like tendency, over any obstacle and challenge, over any circumstance that we can draw from that power. If we run out of patience, we can go inward and say, Spirit, give me patience. Give me love for this person I hate. Give me forgiveness for this person that I feel bitter against. You give me power and help me to conquer and help me to draw from you. You're inside of me. What does it look like to do ministry in a way where it's not just about us expending, you know, our spiritual spiritual gifts, expending our energy, expending our love, but instead we see what the Lord is doing in the life of others like Jesus did. And we just come alongside of God's already working in each person in your life, in your family life, with your coworkers, with your daughter, with your son. And and you're watching your little ones and you're saying, I'm not just going to shape them in the curriculum I grew up with. I'm going to see what the spirit, how the spirit is crafting 
their character, how the Spirit is drawing them to Christ, how the Spirit has given them purpose. And I want to be a mother and a father who sees what the Spirit's doing and comes alongside and partners with the Spirit for my children, for my wife, for my church, for my friends. The Spirit lives inside of you. I, I just hope that this week there would just be so many moments where you just stop. And you just allow yourself to sit in the reality that God in all his glory and holiness and all his splendor lives inside of you. You have access to him anytime. He leans into your whispers. He knows your thoughts. He loves you through and through. And he wants to be a part of your moment. He wants to participate in your waking and sleeping in your day, in your movements. And are you just acknowledging him? You know, are you just, are you simply throughout the course of your day just saying, God, thank you so much for like, living in me and I just want to hold your hand throughout this day I just want to know you're with me and that I can draw on you in every moment your life would be different my life would be different just being in that reality acknowledging it it will transform you you know when I was a kid I I just always felt um, I felt bullied a lot at school and I had no friends um, from fifth, first grade to fifth grade. I spent, I just kind of remember every lunch just being alone. Like no one, no one to eat with after food, no one to play with, um, just trying to avoid being bullied. And, and I knew, I knew the Lord, like I became Christian at four and believed he was real. And I remember just, being at school saying, God, like you're with me. And would you, would you help me not to be alone? Would you just kind of spend lunch with me? And so for like years, it was just me and Jesus, like eating lunch together. And, and I had him as this like best friend. I remember for hours on end, I would struggle with asthma and, and just, just want, just long for and gasp for that next breath and just cry out to the Lord and say, Lord, would you just, Holy Spirit, would you like give me that breath of life? And I just remember him being close and every breath felt like him breathing into my lungs. Um, and, and I, yeah, I just remember reading God's word every day and him just sh allowing his word to come alive in me and man i just hope that your life can be marked by the spirit that you would just it's the greatest miracle in the universe him living inside of us and and are we even like operating and cognizant and thinking about that so i hope that this week 
I hope that you would just stop and think about the Spirit living in you, that He loves you, that He's with you, and that you would just sit with Him too. Father, we're so grateful for today. and Man, that's all I want. All I want is for my brothers and sisters to know that you are you're holy, you're huge, you're powerful, and somehow you decided to take up residence in us because you love us, because you want to be near, and because you want to help us. And I pray that, man, that that would anchor every day, every moment of our life, and that this week you would just stop each person in their tracks, God, You would stop each person in their tracks as they wake up, when they're brushing their teeth, um, when when they're driving, that they would just silently and quietly remember that you live inside of them and that it would change every part of who they are. God, I pray that our, our church would be a church that can quiet their souls, that doesn't have to numb their senses with screens and and loud music, but we would sit satisfied in you, in silence, blocking out the noise in solitude, moving away from others so that we can move inward towards you and just kind of have that stability of being with you many moments in the day. God, I I just love this church so much, and I think you have so much more for us in our faith. And I pray that this year you would move us toward your spirit and that it would give life to everything we do. In Jesus' name, amen.